Welcome to the Fairview Church Podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. Well, good morning, Fairview. So glad to see you all today. If you're new with us, my name is Devin Black. I'm the pastor of worship and administration here at Fairview. Yes, you heard that right. Worship and administration, and that is strange. Right? Yeah, thank you. The first amen I ever got. (laughs) Worship and administration. Typically, you don't have a creative person handling administrative things, so good luck. Now, I was thinking about it. Um, pastor of worship and administration. Uh, you know what? I'm like the mullet of pastors. Those are on the rise again, remember? Short in the front, party in the back. I'm like, administration up here, let my hair down, do some worship. Y'all pray for me. <laughs> Students, don't call me Pastor Mullet, if you don't mind. Hey, if you haven't been around also, um, I also, I just, before we start, I wanted to say thank you to Graham and to Briley and the, and the worship team for leading us. Can we just thank them and thank God for his provision in that? Fairview, we are so blessed because we have such an incredible, talented group of volunteers, volunteers who spend their time and, and effort being here and leading us in worship. And I am in a unique situation where I can confidently hand off that responsibility And do this instead. So I'm just so grateful to be here and to be a part of this. Also, if you haven't been around, our interim pastor, Trevin Wax, he started us in a series called The Stories Jesus Told. And it's all about the parables. Now, a parable is just a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. And Jesus used many of these throughout the course of his ministry and teaching. And this week, as you've already seen, We've already read the passage is the parable of the talents. Now, before we jump into the scriptures again, I wanna ask you all a question just by a show of hands. And I'm gonna go ahead and put mine up because I'm guilty of these. Have any of you ever missed some sort of critical opportunity? Liars, there we go, thank you. Or have any of you severely underperformed in an assignment? There you go, thank you. Not by myself up here. So the last time I was here with you, I shared about this family that I married into where physical activity and athletics was a thing that they did. It wasn't their end-all be-all, but it was important and I got to kind of broaden my horizon and step into that. And I'm so grateful that I can say that they have been nothing but wonderful and supportive and encouraging. And I'm, I'm grateful for that, even when I struggle to keep up with them. But I'm also blessed by the fact that my family, my parents, my brother, my extended family, they too have always been incredibly supportive to me as well. Most importantly of my faith, my parents discipled me as a child to know and love Jesus, and I'm eternally grateful for that. But also in the case of music, that has been fostered and encouraged as well. See, both of my parents are very talented singers. In fact, the first part of my life, we, were, we spent a lot of time in the family station wagon traveling over the country and they would go to different churches and they'd sing and teach. They were traveling evangelists. That was that context I was a part of. And then furthermore, my, my brother, he's a talented musician in his own right. He's a bass player. He does great there. 
Uh, my, my grandmother on my dad's side, she spent most of her life singing in the church choir. And my grandfather on my mother's side, he was an accomplished jazz musician. He played clarinet. He'd lead big bands and trios, very talented person. So I was surrounded by music and creativity growing up. And at a young age, I, I showed some interest and I had a little bit of talent. And so starting at the age of eight, I was able to start taking piano lessons. And all throughout elementary school and junior high, I continued. At one point, I found a teacher who taught me basic chord theory and improvisation. That's what you see here. That's what you see with most of the musicians on stage. We don't have written out like notes of music that we're following. We, we have a chord structure and we're making up what we play. And I'm eternally grateful for that foundation because it allows me to play in this context. But as I was approaching high school, we decided it'd probably be beneficial for me to be exposed to classical training, which if you know anything about that, it's just a completely different animal altogether. And we were fortunate to find a very accomplished concert pianist in our area to be my teacher. Now she had received multiple performance degrees from the, happened last service too, the New England Conservatory of Music, excuse me. Now the New England Conservatory of Music in Boston is a very prestigious school. You may not know it, but think uh, like Juilliard, that might be a, a, a school you're familiar with. It's kind of that level of people that go to these institutions and train and study. And she herself, following her, her studies, had quite a bit of success concertizing throughout Europe. She met her husband over there and, and was quite accomplished. And as they settled down and, and had children, they decided to settle back in Arizona where she had family and she began to teach. And so I started with her my freshman year and heading into my junior year of high school, suddenly it was my great plan and dream to become a concert pianist myself. And that's no small undertaking. It's very specialized. And so I was switching high schools and the high school I was going to, um, the principal there, we had had some experience with in the past. We went to church with her previously. So we had a relationship built with this uh, person and she was able to be very accommodating. They allowed me to do part of my studies via correspondence. So I only had to stay on campus half days. And so the, the plan was then, I'd have that extra time in the afternoon to practice. So here's my opportunity. I've got a world-class teacher. I've got a very accommodating school and schedule. I've got these extra hours to practice. And I've got a family and parents who are just incredibly supportive. Go for it. Let's do this. Now, I would love to tell you that I was completely disciplined and carrying out this master plan. Now, to be fair, I did practice a lot more than I would have. And I made a lot more progress than I would have without this opportunity. But there were many weeks, too many weeks, that I did not make adequate progress. I did not make best use of that opportunity. At the start of every lesson, my teacher would have me play for her. And like any great teacher or instructor, she could tell pretty quickly if I'd put in the work. She knew if I did the exercises. She knew if I'd made adequate progress in the piece that I was learning or memorizing. And it didn't take long for her to be like, okay, without saying anything, I knew that I hadn't done what I needed to do. All she would do 
was simply get out her metronome. Does anybody know what a metronome is? A few of you? They've got digital ones now, which are fine, but there's the cool old ones. They kind of look like this obelisk-looking thing you set on the piano. And musicians use this. It's got a pendulum that ticks back and forth, kind of like the reverse of a clock pendulum. And it sets a tempo. And the point is to set it at a slow tempo so you practice and learn a piece at a slower speed until you're competent at that speed. And over time, you increase the speed until you can play it at performance speed. So all she had to do was pop that thing out, set it at a slow speed, and set it on the piano. And in the time that we should have been going over a lesson, or she should have been teaching me, or I should have been working on my interpretation of whatever piece, she would watch me practice. The thing I should have been doing all week up to that point. Now, each one of those types of lesson was a missed opportunity. I didn't live up to what was expected. And ultimately, as you can see, I am not a concert pianist now. And I don't regret that. Like, I understand, I I have full confidence in God's calling in my life that I am here where I'm supposed to be today. And I learned great things through that experience. And though she never predicted shame or or anything against me, I, I still felt guilty. I felt shame because I had missed an opportunity. Now, I'm sure each of you have similar stories that possibly come to mind or situations where you didn't quite live up to something you were expected to. I want to ask kind of file those away for just a minute as we dig into the scriptures together. So as we approach the parable of the talents, it's important for us to remember where we are in the story of scripture. We're in the book of Matthew. We're towards the end of it, the the last couple of chapters. So Jesus has already entered into Jerusalem So we're past Palm Sunday. We're marching toward Good Friday and Easter. At this point, he's already done some teaching in the temple. And he's been sparring with the religious leaders already. And they're they're trying to kill him. So those plots are hatching. And on their way out of the temple one particular day, he's walking with his disciples. And they're all looking around. They're like, wow, look at this place. Isn't the temple, isn't it magnificent? Isn't it heavenly? What an incredible structure. And Jesus was like, yeah, it's all coming down. Like the most bummer of prophecies. Just kind of lets the air out of their balloon. He's like, yeah, sorry to say, guys, there's a time coming very soon that not one stone will be remaining on top of the other. And they're like, okay. So they kind of just shuffle up the... Mount of Olives together and they get settled up there. Jesus kind of sits down and I just picture the disciples kind of like, you talk to him. What is he talking about, right? So one, probably Peter because he always opens his mouth when he shouldn't. That's not in the Bible, I'm just assuming. He's like, Jesus, what are you talking about? When is all this gonna happen? And from that question, Jesus springboards into lengthy teaching on the things to come, signs of the ends of the age, predicting persecution and a great time of tribulation, the coming of the son of man, the mystery of all that timing, the surrounding that, and the call ultimately to faithfulness. And he begins to illustrate the kingdom of heaven, his kingdom, through these various parables, one of which we're looking at today. So that's where we're at. So let's pick up in verse 19. We're just gonna kind of go through this kind of a couple of verses at a time. 
Verse 14 says, for it, it being the kingdom of God, his kingdom, for it is just like a man about to go out on a journey. He called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. So the man's going away and he'll be gone for an indeterminate amount of time, but very likely a lengthy time. Because if it wasn't lengthy, why would he entrust his stuff to someone else? If it was just gonna be a couple weeks, he'd be like, see you in a few weeks, I'll be right back. But no, the, the Greek here, paradidomi, literally means he hands over his things. Like he's giving them all but claim of ownership to go and to do and to use wisely. So there's a great deal of trust and expectation placed upon these stewards. Picking up in verse 15, it says, to one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, depending on each one's ability. So he didn't give equal portions to his servants, but according to their ability. So this shows that this master has an intimate understanding and knowledge of his servants, right? He's not this disengaged, disinterested master who doesn't know his people well. No, he knows them well enough and he adjusts their level of responsibility accordingly. Now, additionally, the amount of money and influence that's given to these servants was immense. You see, because of our limited perspective as 21st century Americans, we can miss some of this language he uses for for emphasis. Because we hear words like servant, and we think, oh, he's talking about someone doing manual labor or setting a table or some other menial task. But the level of stuff that's involved with this shows these were very highly educated, influential, and accomplished men. And so when we hear phrases also like, to one he gave five talents, to another two talents, etc., cetera, we, we hear like, hey, buddy, here's some bits of coin of indeterminate value, you know, play nice while I'm away. No, Jesus was like, here is an absurd amount of money. How absurd? One talent is equal to 6,000 days wages. That's about 20 years worth of wages for a skilled laborer. And to the first, he gave five of those things, right? That's a hundred years worth of income for a skilled laborer, more than a lifetime. In fact, if you kind of look at the life expectancy of someone in the first century, you could make a case that's like two lifetimes working wages, right? And he gives it to the first guy. Two talents would be 40 years worth and one talent would be 6,000 days or 20 years wages. So for the sake of clarity on what we're talking about, just to kind of bring it to our context here in 2023 in Lebanon, the median income for Wilson County for an individual, for one person, is $33,000 per year. And so that would make five talents to be $3.3 million. Yeah. Two would be just over $1.3 million. One talent, 6,000 days worth of wages, $660,000. Now, I would just imagine that you all have friends or family members you wouldn't even trust with that kind of money, let alone an employee or a servant. It's like one step, of sh- one step shy of Jesus saying like, here's a zillion dollars. Like it's almost that absurd, the amount of money we're talking about. And look, look who he's talking to. 
He's talking to his disciples. Many of them are just common fishermen who have spent their whole life just day by day making one day's wage, one denarius at a time. They might have some assets. They probably have a boat, some nets, other accessories. Matthew's the one writing this particular account. He was a tax collector. So if his business practices were consistent with others we read about, you know, overcharging and pocketing the difference, he might've had some access to wealth in his previous life, but nothing, nothing compared to this. So hear this, Jesus is emphasizing the value of what's being entrusted to his servants. Let's continue on. Then he went on a journey. Immediately, the man who had received five talents went, put them to work and earned five more. In the same way, the man with two earned two more. So the master leaves on his journey. And when is it that these first two get started on their assignment? Immediately, right? They got to work. Their master had put them in care of considerable wealth and like, we got to get after this. We're motivated. We're going to do this thing. And look what happened. They each doubled their investment. Now, In verse 19, it does say that it was after a long time that the master returned, but the exact time frame is not provided. So we don't know exactly how long it took these servants to double the investment. Now to anyone who's managed investments before, it is very difficult to double an investment in a short period of time and to do so responsibly. And regardless, it's going to to have risk associated with it. There's direct correlations between risk and reward. I'm sure many of you have heard that. On the extreme end, you could get something from nothing. That's called theft. We don't do that. That's wrong. Maybe just shy of that is some speculative investing that, again, the payoffs could be amazing, but you could lose everything if that thing goes south. Based upon the level of wealth possessed by this master, it's likely that the servants would have full access to the various markets available to them in this first century context. That'd probably include things like buying, selling, trading of physical goods, of livestock, of other assets, as well as maybe some capital investments through lending and banking. They probably have the, the whole world at their fingertips in this. Now, in the investment world today, there's an interesting calculation called the rule of 72. Some of you may have heard it before. The rule of 72 is a formula to determine how long it would take to double your money based on the interest rate your investment is generating and compounding upon itself. And it works like this. You would take the number 72 and divide it by the hypothetical interest rate of the investment. You're probably thinking right now, wait, isn't this the sermon on the parable of talents? Why is Devin doing math? I didn't get to play the piano today. Give me this, all right? We are full business in the front right now. All right, for the sake of easy math, let's say you make 10% on your money. You take the number 72, you divide that by 10, you'd get 7.2. That means it would take 7.2 years for that investment to double. So, Let's just, again, if you invested $100, we'll make this easy. After one year, 10% of 100 is 10, right? So that's $10 added to the 100, $110. That's year one. The second year, 
against another 10%. 10% of 110 is $11. Add that to the 110, you get $121. Year three, you have 133. Year four, 146, so on and so forth, so that just after seven years, it would double to $200. Now, I went through all that painstaking, silly stuff, you might say, to show you it's not easy to double an investment. And that's through today's context. And if you really want to nerd out, if, if we knew the amount of time at play here, you could back in the calculation and see what interest rate they were earning. But we'll save that for another time. Thank you all for going there with me. Verse 18, let's continue on. It says, but the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. So this one, for whatever reason, he did not put in the work. And we'll see his defense later in verses 24 and 25, as well as the master's rebuke and opinion, his right opinion in verses 26 and 27. So we'll, we'll hold on any commentary until then about this guy. Picking up in verse 19. It says, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The man who received five talents approached, presented five more talents and said, master, you gave me five talents. See, I've earned five more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share in your master's joy. The man with two talents also approached. He said, master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share in your master's joy. So the master returned after a long time. Now this ties back to Jesus's earlier teaching that no one knows the day or the time when he'll return. And likewise, these servants, they didn't know when he was returning. The first two here, they account to their master the amount entrusted to their care and the increase they were able to earn through their work. Now they rightly claimed that they had earned an equal amount equal to the investment provided by the master, but, but they claimed no ownership of any of it. They recognize it all still belonged to the master. And it's here that the master shows his true character. He says, great job. Way to go. Good and faithful servant. And notice, he doesn't praise the earnings. He doesn't emphasize the return on his investment. He praises their character. He tells them they are good. He tells them they are faithful. He endows them later with more to manage and invites them to share in his joy. Another translation puts it this way. He says, now enter into the joy of your master. And I can just picture Jesus opening his arms for embrace. Now, let me ask an easy question. Who in this story, does the master represent? It's easy, it's Jesus. He's describing his kingdom. He's personifying himself as the master and revealing his nature and his character. And I want you to hold on to the character and qualities that he just described as we go into these next verses. Verse 24. The man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You are a harsh man, 
reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid and went off and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. What? The master is a harsh man? Reaping where he hasn't sown, gathering where he hasn't scattered seed? But isn't this supposed to be Jesus that we're talking about? See, growing up, reading this part of the story always confused me. Because like any good Bible-believing Christian, I, I believed that every word of God's word is true. And there is dissonance here because I believed the description and characterization of the master by this servant. But it doesn't sound like the Jesus I've learned about and follow. And, and remember those character and qualities we just told you about what, to, to remember from the previous verses? These two descriptions, they seem to be in disagreement. But then I came to learn, no, the description of the master by this servant is not true. Our master, Jesus Christ, is not harsh. Now, he'll kick over a table in the temple like he did before. And and he certainly will deal out justice against evil in due time. But ours is a master who opens his arms to his servant and proclaims, good and faithful one, enter into your master's joy. Our master the creator has sown throughout all of his created universe and has created the very seed to scatter for every harvest. You see, in this servant's effort to excuse himself, he slanders his master. He lies, painting a false picture. And the master calls him out. Let's read this. It says, his master replied to him, you evil, lazy servant, If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. The master's like, you blew it. First, he calls the servant evil. This is calling out the evil of slander, the lies told about the master to make excuses. And furthermore, even if if the slander were true, if the master was a cruel man, if he had gathered where he had reaped where he hadn't sown and gathered where he hadn't cast seed. The servant still got it wrong because he was too lazy to even deposit the money into the bank and to gain interest. And the servant's laziness and evil will cost him dearly. Verse 28 says, so take the talent from him and gave it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given And he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And throw this good for nothing servant into our outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's happened here is the master has revealed that this servant is counterfeit. He does not truly belong. By his own choice, his own actions, this servant has not proven faithful. And therefore what he has will be taken away. And then we see a picture of the coming judgment for all who follow suit. As we close out this parable, I want us to consider these points. If Christ is the master of the story, and we proclaim to be his servants, first, he has given each of us much to care for responsibly. Do you remember those calculations we made? That was just an illustration of the immeasurable value he's placed in each of you. You have so much to offer, so much to steward, so much to do well with. 
He's invested in you. He believes in you. He knows you. He truly knows you. Number two, he expects us to diligently produce an increase. See, if we prove ourselves faithful like the first two servants, the natural outcome is the increase. We show our faithfulness, our good character, and that, that's the biggest thing. That's what he's concerned about is our, is our hearts. He, he's not going to praise the increase we produce, but he praises the, the manifestation of what was necessary to produce the increase, the growth of character, the wise stewardship. Number three, he will require an accounting of our management. See, he's coming back and we will be held accountable. Again, what what we have to show for him, for his time away is, is directly the result of the condition of our hearts. And the question is, will the accounting that we provide demonstrate goodness and faithfulness or evil and laziness? And fourth, he will increase the portion of those who faithfully belong and invite them to share in his joy. If we prove ourselves faithful, more will be given to steward because we serve a faithful and generous master and his goodness and faithfulness is reflected in us. See, it's the character. It's, it's the growing to be more like the master that matters, not the stuff. That's prosperity gospel. God cares about the heart. So what I want you to know to Fairview Church is what we do in the here and now, what we do today, it matters. Actions, good works, they do not save you, but they are evidence and markers of your salvation. James 2 tells us that faith without works is dead. So let's just take a moment to consider the things that God has entrusted to each of us. Where are we being diligent and faithful? Or where are we possibly being lazy, making excuses? Now, this doesn't necessarily mean money, but it can. Money is a powerful resource of God's and he's entrusted to each of us and we ought to be faithful to him and how we manage what he's entrusted to us. Otherwise, why would he use this as the illustrating point? And can I just challenge us with this as well regarding our possessions, our money and how faithful we are in administrating it? Let us not spiritualize or justify foolishness and call that faith. Let's be honest with ourselves and critically consider our stewardship and whether or not we truly are being faithful or if we're being foolish. Take a look at your bank statement. It's gonna be very revealing. But it's, it's more than just that. Consider your time. Consider your employment, your giftings, your talent. Consider your family. Parents, are you faithful in accepting the responsibility of being the primary source of discipleship to your kids? What are you teaching them regarding faith? How are you emphasizing the word of God? Are you clearly communicating the imminent, preeminent place and importance of being engaged in Christ's body, his local church? And here's a specific issue to consider. Our kids ministry here is growing quickly and it's fantastic. We love seeing the growth over there. But there are many times that Beck Jones, our kids director, she seriously considers whether or not she has enough help on a Sunday morning to adequately care for and minister to these kids. And there have been Sundays where she is one empty volunteer spot away from being able to even, to even have services for the kids. In church, to be forthright with you, the only reason she doesn't have enough help in a church this size is because there are individuals in our worship services who are not being faithful with what the master has entrusted to them. 
with their time, their availability, their gifting. Now, it's not my intention to shame. No, but as a pastor and as a a shepherd of this congregation, it is my job to foster conviction by the power of God's word and call to repentance and faithfulness. And it's not for the sake of conviction itself, but to point to Christ, our master, whose arms are open and offering to those who will rise up and be faithful, enter into the joy of your master. That's what's at stake here. We've all missed opportunities to live up to what's expected of us. I missed many with my piano teacher and my opening illustration, but all that cost me was some embarrassment, disappointment, possibly a career as a concert pianist. So we're gonna spend some time now responding to God through song and prayer. Now, following this first song, we will take the Lord's Supper together and I'll come back up here to lead us through that. And the supper is is open to all who profess Christ as their savior and have followed him in obedience through baptism. And together we will, as Pastor Trevin says, feed on Christ for spiritual nourishment. And if you didn't get the elements on the way in, take this opportunity to go get them or the deacons will bring that around to prepare them. But most importantly, during this first song, I want each of us to consider these questions and respond accordingly. Are there works of faithfulness in your life showing evidence that Jesus is your master? If so, that's great. But are there any areas that are still out of a line that need to be addressing? I think many of us could probably take some time to consider that. If no, if you can't, he's like, if you just say, I have nothing to show, then I'd beg you to consider making your first act of faithfulness by accepting Jesus as the master of your life and allowing his spirit to produce further faithfulness in how you live your life and manage what he has entrusted to you. I'm gonna invite everybody to stand. We're gonna pray. We're gonna sing. The front will be open for prayer. The prayer room will be open as well. I just want us to all to consider this, to truly take stock of where we are with the Lord as we respond together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And we invite you to convict, to change, to move within us so we might reflect Christ all the better. May you be honored in our worship and what's said and done for the rest of the service. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.